From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Thanksgiving, Thursday, November 22nd. I'm Aaron Schachter. Rebels in Syria claim to control an oil-producing region in the east of the country, but this activist says it's not enough. We need to see major cities fall. That's when the balance of power will really begin to shift. We need those first dominoes to drop. And later we hear from a woman who helps disaster victims rescue their damaged family photos. So many generations of photos are still on paper, are still in albums that are sitting in people's basements, and that's where they're vulnerable. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. For a week, the international spotlight fell on Gaza and the fighting between Israel and Hamas militants. But that other conflict in the region, in Syria, has continued unabated. Today, Syrian rebels said they captured an army base in Mayadeen in the east of the country. The rebels celebrated with prayers and gunfire. The victory would appear to be a severe blow for the Syrian government, Amr al-Azam is a professor at Shawnee State University and a prominent member of the Syrian opposition here in the U.S. He says the rebels still have a long way to go. Ultimately, what needs to happen now is to break the deadlock. Uh, you know, you mentioned just now that they, they took Mayadeen, which is a very significant and uh, strategic uh, position. But that said, the opposition forces have yet to take a major city. We need to see major cities fall. That's when the balance of power will really begin to shift. We need those first dominoes to drop. And, you know, I, I see Aleppo falling first probably because, you know, that's where a lot of the fighting has occurred and for quite some time. But I also see the resort as a linchpin because if the resort falls, that's the road that leads you into Damascus from the east end, from the Ruta, the eastern Ruta. And I think that's a very likely uh, access point to Damascus rather than punching your way through the north, you know, through Hama and Homs, which are going to be very heavily defended by the regime, or even from the south, primarily because I don't quite see the Jordanians having the same appetite for supporting the opposition fighters in the same way that the Turks do. Now, as you mentioned, after more than a year of fighting, rebels haven't taken a major city from the government. Why do you think that is? Most importantly, you need to be able to neutralize the Air Force, the last remaining single powerful punch you know, that the regime still maintains and is able to blunt any offensive that the opposition has been able to put together to attack and try to take cities like Aleppo. And finally, remember, the regime also still holds significant resources that have been held back, I think, for later battles. And these include, you know, the latest frontline main battle tanks, the Russian, the big Russian tanks. These are, I think, still being held back. We haven't seen those in action. Now, uh, President Obama was re-elected You know, now that election year politics is out of the way, do you foresee the United States providing more support, either a no-fly zone, uh, weapons, anything? 
I sense from uh, you know people that we we talk to here in the United States government that they are aware and understand that they need to insert that qualitative type of support now. Also, we might see the introduction of some small amounts of high-tech weaponry, or maybe even the introduction of you know covert action special forces that can come in, do whatever is necessary, and come out again. I think at the end of it, um, the international community, and I think a lot of people in Syria, do not necessarily want a, a cataclysmic, apocalyptic collapse of the regime. They would like to bring the regime to a point where it is willing to negotiate its way out. Amr al-Azam is a professor at Shawnee State University and a member of the Syrian opposition here in the United States. Mr. al-Azam, thank you so much. Thank you. Meanwhile, the ceasefire between Israel and militants in Gaza seems to be holding. And after a week of daily bombardments, the residents of Gaza woke up to a very different atmosphere today. AFP reporter Sarah Hussein says Gazans felt safe enough to venture out freely. People flooded into the streets in the morning to resume their normal lives. We saw shops reopening, traffic jams for the first time in a week. We saw queues outside of ATMs and people heading out to celebratory rallies that were held throughout the city. And there were signs of relief in Israel, too, though some Israelis are skeptical about the ceasefire, and some wish their government had done more to neutralize the threat of rockets from Gaza. The world's Matthew Bell spent some time in the city of Beersheba today to get a sense of the mood there. At a nursery for premature babies in Beersheba's main hospital, they weren't taking any chances this time. Four years ago, during Israel's last war in Gaza, three rockets landed nearby. So when it looked like hostilities would escalate last week, hospital staff moved dozens of newborns to safer locations, including this hallway. Well, babies are here because the uh, the newborn, uh, the premature nursery is a one-story building. It may even have a glass ceiling. Okay. Dr. Shimon Glick is the former dean of the medical school here. No one was killed in Beersheba during this latest round of violence, but Glick says it's been a rough week with dozens of rockets fired at this Israeli city from the Gaza Strip, so he's relieved that there's a ceasefire. I think we're happy that the rockets have stopped stopped shooting, and we hope, we hope, uh, I'm an optimist, but I, I really can't be optimistic considering the degree of hate and the degree of intensity of, of fanaticism that exists now there. Uh, I can't be optimistic that it's really going to last very long. The longer it lasts, the happier I'll be. It's quiet in the hospital parking lot. If there had been a ground war launched today instead of a ceasefire, it would likely be a very different scene with ambulances and helicopters bringing in wounded Israeli soldiers. Khalil, a Bedouin Arab man from the area who's visiting a sick relative, is an Israeli army veteran. He says the ceasefire is fantastic news for everyone. He says peace for Palestinians and Israelis is absolutely the best. Ongoing peace for Arabs and Jews, he adds, that is what's needed. A 20-year-old army officer in training named Jonathan, arriving for a doctor's appointment, tells me some of his friends in uniform are disappointed that they're not going to war in Gaza. It's the job they've been training to do. But that's not how he feels. I think it's better this way, he says. By fighting a ground war, Israel probably would not have been able to achieve any better results. But it's not hard to find Israelis who disagree. Yuval Kohavi moved his family out of their home in a kibbutz next to the Gaza border last week. 
He says they're not ready to move back yet. It looks like the, the government should uh, do more. We feel that uh, it's not so safe. What do you mean when you say the government should do more? Uh, with the army. Maybe let the army make the job more. Get, get in, clear more the missiles and all what they have, the weapon and all that. We feel that it's uh, half of the work done. A job unfinished. That's a message political rivals of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu are sending already. There's an Israeli election coming up in January, and his handling of the military campaign in Gaza could be a campaign issue. But Anna Juarez won't be around to watch it play out. She and her husband, who's Jewish, immigrated here from Mexico four years ago. Their plans changed abruptly on Sunday, when a rocket from Gaza landed 20 yards from their home. Anna was inside with their three-month-old daughter. She says it's been a traumatizing week. All this man, I, I hear some uh, uh, sound or something. Uh, I come into the uh, panic attack and I, I start crying and uh, it's not good. Also, my, my baby is uh, crying and she isn't uh, eating okay, she isn't asleep okay. So it's uh, really hard to be in this uh, situation. So I, I, I can't... Uh, handle it, so I am going away. Juarez and her husband say they have no faith that the ceasefire will last long, and in any case, they've decided raising their child here is not a good idea. Now, they're moving back to Mexico. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell, Beersheba, Israel. You can see pictures of some of the people in Matthew's story. We have a slideshow at theworld.org. The conflict between Israelis and Palestinians has often been portrayed as a religious war, and each side has been known to claim that God is on its side. That's a sentiment that makes Qasim Rashid cringe. He's a lawyer, and he writes about religion. This week, he wrote a piece for The Daily Beast called Prophet Muhammad's Rules of War. Rashid said those rules were clearly laid out in the Quran. Permission to fight is given once war has been waged upon you. And that permission to fight is only to promote religious freedom and to ensure that fighting has come to an end. The Quran furthermore says that when someone is attacking you, you are only allowed to fight those who are attacking you, no one else. The second somebody lays down their arms, you must lay down your arms. There is no retribution. There is no revenge in this regard. And then from the Hadith, uh, the sayings of Prophet Muhammad, we find very clearly that he gives some very specific rules. Do not mutilate dead bodies. Neither kill a child, nor a woman, nor an old man. Do not harm trees. Do not burn trees, especially those that are fruitful. Do not slay the enemy's flock except for your food. This is the black and white text, very straightforward. So the rules of war that you mentioned there from um, Prophet Muhammad, they don't seem to be applied anywhere by Muslims or anyone else for a very long time. I wonder if you can speak to that or, and perhaps give us an example of, of when you feel they were last followed. That's a very important point you uh, bring up. And the fact is that these are not being applied today. And one of the consequences of that is the perpetual warfare that our world is unfortunately going through. These rules, however, are practical, as demonstrated not only at the time of Prophet Muhammad, but also during the Middle Ages with the legendary general uh, Salahuddin. When he conquered Jerusalem... It was not only to remove tyrannical rule, but also to establish religious freedom. 
And history records that he insisted that Jews return to Jerusalem as equals because he understood how valuable it was to them from a religious perspective, and he wanted to respect that. There's a very famous incident in a battle with King Richard the Lionhearted. Salahuddin saw him fall off a horse. Rather than attack him, Salahuddin sent King Richard his own horse, waited for him to mount, and then began fighting him again. The element that I want to make very clear is that it doesn't matter what religion you believe or do not believe in. These rules of war are not religious. They're secular rules of war. So no, no matter the time frame, no matter the religion or lack thereof, these rules are just as applicable. Yeah, th- th- that's an interesting point, though, is you point to a, a period in history where war was very personal. It was man against man. Between Gaza and Israel, you're firing rockets from the middle of a field, from an airplane, from a helicopter. You know, it's pretty hard to, to go give the other guy your horse. No, you're absolutely right. But but it's not hard to recognize that when you're fighting a battle, there are combatants and there are innocent civilians involved. And actions that will harm innocent civilians or kill innocent civilians, as we're seeing, are actions that simply should be avoided. Now, part of what's so galling about this discussion, in a way, is that both sides actually use God in their warfare. Israel calls itself the most moral army in the world. Hamas uses God to justify its actions. You know, how is it that you expect your words to sink in in a situation like this? People have long called upon God as their justification for violence. When somebody wants to commit a violent act or somebody wants to commit an act of terrorism, they will find whatever excuse is most convenient for them to do so. But Qasim, I mean, defending yourself is is also a matter of interpretation. Certainly groups in Iraq say that war is being waged against them because uh, an occupying power is there. Same goes for Israel. In essence, the, the Jewish state is occupying Muslim land. This is where the distinction comes between defending for religious freedom and trying to resolve political and economic disputes. And what you're commenting on Iraq and Israel, these are reflections of, I think, a violation of justice because uh, decisions were not being made based on humanitarian concerns, but based on political alliances. Qasim Rashid is a lawyer and the national spokesman for the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Thank you so much. Thank you. Coming up, saving family photos from the flood or earthquake or superstorm on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. This Thanksgiving is likely to be a difficult holiday for East Coast residents who experienced the tragedy of Hurricane Sandy. So many lost their homes, or worse, they lost family members. Old family pictures are often lost in natural disasters as well. And just like there are volunteers who help victims cope with basics like shelter and food, some volunteers help survivors restore their damaged family pictures. There's actually an international network of photo restorers linked online that is increasingly mobilizing after disasters. They've already started to go to work on photos damaged by Hurricane Sandy. Lee Kelly is the founder of a nonprofit group called CARE for Sandy. CARE stands for Cherished Albums Restoration Effort. I have retouchers from Brazil and Sweden and Canada and uh the Ukraine, and all wanting to reach out and and help out. Kelly says the work is demanding. 
it's been overwhelming and very emotional. A family came to us on Tuesday and the woman said, this is my mother. She passed away from cancer six years ago. This is the only memento I have of her remaining. Those restoring photos in the aftermath of Sandy have learned lessons from those who did similar work in Japan after the earthquake and tsunami last year. New Yorker Becky Manson traveled to Japan with a nonprofit called All Hands Volunteers. She started out doing traditional relief work in the small town of Ofunato. And then she says she turned to helping tsunami victims find and restore their family photos. There was a, a temporary library set up from the photos we'd hand cleaned. Thousands of photos were found. So people would go and visit the library, look through them. It was empty as soon as we could fill it. It was wonderful because the towns were so small. People would just look. They'd they'd find their neighbor, their auntie, their cousin, and they'd give them a call and say, I haven't just seen a photo of you. Mm. Come down and have a look. Now, Becky, why do you think for some people the loss of a family photo is especially painful? It's always the first thing you think of when you when something bad happens. You think of oh, what do I grab? What you know, if it's a fire or a flood, what what do I say first? Generally, most people would think of their family photos, their memories. The those are the things that it, you can't replace, no matter how much money you've got. Technology these days is means it's easier for us to replace them or keep them somewhere safe on a a remote cloud server or something like that, but. So many, so many generations of photos are still on paper, are still in albums that are sitting in people's basements, and that's where they're vulnerable. Was there a particular case that uh, stands out in your mind? The one that always catches me the most, it was a young girl, she came to visit early on. She'd come from Tokyo. She'd moved there from the town that we were in, based in after the tsunami, and um, she came to look through the photos to see if she can find anything. She also looked through the town to see if she could find anything of hers. She had lost her home and her mum and dad and her grandma. Um, she'd lost everyone and everything she ever had, but she she found seven photos. We scanned them, we fixed them as much as we could for her, but that was all she ever found, as far as I know, from everything she had before mm. the tsunami. And... They were nondescript photos as far as most people can, most people who look at them would, would think. One of the retouchers actually emailed me and said, why am I fixing this picture? It's a picture out of a window of a plane. And I told her the story of the girl and she completely understood and um, never questioned it again. Photos might look like they're completely meaningless to someone else, but to that one person, they're particularly special. And there's always a story. You did go to Japan, though, to do volunteer work uh, like everyone else, I imagine, clearing debris and that sort of thing. Did anyone ever suggest to you that dealing with photos was uh, not the most important thing you could be doing? I did a TED Talk this year, um, and it's online, and and I've read comments on there, and people that's the criticism people have put on there. Not very often. They say, you know, this isn't the most important thing to do after a tsunami or a disaster. And they're right. It's absolutely not. Um, people need homes. They need shelter. They need food. They need the basic necessities of life. Over time, photos are what they're going to probably miss the most, apart from obviously loved ones. Well, but- it's important to point out, too, that the volunteer work, for the most part, is being done not by people in Japan, but, but uh, people outside the country. Yes, the the restoration work was the network of remote volunteers. They were all around the world. And many of them, I had many messages from them over the the course of the project and since thanking me because they either 
wanted to get to Japan and help and couldn't afford it. They had families, they couldn't leave their jobs, all this kind of thing. And it gave them a chance to use talents and skills that they have to to help in a way they never thought they could. We all see disasters happen and wish we were medics or wish we were emergency responders or even like later on a carpenter or electrician in the case of Sandy, you know. But it was nice to find a way with the, the skills we have that we just sitting alone in the dark room and retouching all day to know we can touch someone's life on the other side of the world. Becky, you're living in Brooklyn now and have uh, done a bit of volunteer work with Sandy victims. There are relief groups there that have begun photo restoration projects around New York, New Jersey area. You haven't yet. Uh, Why aren't you getting involved in that there? There's been a couple of reasons. One was there's people without shelter. There's people without basic necessities and heat. Much of the photos are extremely important and getting the information out to people so they know what to do with them in the interim is extremely important. Actually going full steam ahead and setting up workshops like I've done before and and, and scanning and restoration and all this. I just think it's there just needs to be a pause. You mentioned that in Japan, a lot of the photographs were found uh, essentially floating around. I, I wonder if you've happened upon any post-Sandy photos, you know, in the street or on the ground, and if so, what did they make you think about? Certainly took me back to Japan. The, the the family we helped out last week in or oh, the week week before in Staten Island we found I found photos in her basement and put them aside. It took me straight back to Japan and and to, to that that knowledge that you know these people have just had everything taken away from them, including those things that every personal private belonging that they they had, but knowing that there's New York City is the is the capital. But, arguably the capital of photography. There are a lot more people here available to help out and do these things. And I think it's awesome people are doing this and, and it's already underway with certain groups. It's great. Now, some of the people you were with in Japan helping out volunteering have come back now to New York and, and are victims of Sandy themselves. I, I wonder what perspective that's given them and you. It's very much a shock for all of us to to go from disaster relief where, I mean, many of us have helped out in several countries to being here and it actually happening to us. Sitting in, in your home where you felt so secure and safe one night and see the damage afterwards and feel that night that power that was just barreling through New York City and, and this area and seeing what it did to just down the end of your street the next day is it's, it's very different from going in a couple of weeks afterwards and trying to help. Becky, thank you so much. No problem. Becky Manson worked in Japan last year with the nonprofit All Hands Volunteers. You can see pictures of photos restored after the tsunami at theworld.org. This is PRI. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. Ahead, immigrant variations on the Thanksgiving dinner. And later, rationalists in India take on a popular temple where pilgrims say they witness a miracle. It's a kind of spell. All these tens and thousands of people, millions of people stand there just to see the light glow. 
PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Thanksgiving meals are being prepared and consumed all around the nation today, and that means a lot of turkey, yes, but also lots of tamales, Chinese cod stew, baklava, and a long list of other dishes that don't appear on the traditional Thanksgiving menu. To find out what some immigrant families serve for their Thanksgiving meals, the world's Monica Campbell went shopping earlier this week in San Francisco. Here in San Francisco, like many places that immigrants call home, what's on the table for Thanksgiving can vary pretty widely. Many stick to the usual, turkey, mashed potatoes, cranberry sauce, but not everyone. Just ask Lea Nicolaitis from Brazil. The turkey is not our favorite, so I like to have a good chicken Roasted, you know, with the Brazilian, you know, uh, all the greens, you know, and all the condiments. That's the way we celebrate Thanksgiving. At an Asian seafood market, my lamb watches her customers inspect crabs and lobsters from massive water tanks. Chinese cod and black bass are laid out on beds of ice. Lamb is gearing up for her own 70-person feast. She's from Vietnam, but she's doing seafood, Cajun style. A friend of mine lives in uh, New Orleans and sent me a recipe and all the ingredients for the Cajun. Mixed like uh, crab and clam and uh, corn, potato, yeah, and then some other uh, appetites like uh, bacon wrap with scallop, bacon wrap with oyster. And for the kids' menu, we have garlic noodle and mac and cheese. <laughs> Lamb pauses a bit to check on butchers preparing fish. Yeah, we came here in 79, but probably it's new to us with Thanksgiving tradition. One of the friends next door, they invite us, so we know the tradition. Hi. We're great, thanks. Not far away, on San Francisco's Mission Street, there's the go-to Middle Eastern shop, Samir Amis. It sells everything, from food to small rugs and hookahs. And its young new manager arrived about a year ago from the West Bank city of Ramallah. My name is uh, Wadi Msiyah, Wadi Msiyah in Arabic. I'm from Palestine. People from all over shop here. Immigrants from Egypt and Syria, Latinos and Greeks. They buy the spices, they buy the nuts, they buy Turkish delight, figs, apricots and all the dry fruits and the baklava and they buy the filo dough. Customer Kay Kostopoulos is shopping with her son Andre. I've been coming here forever. Yeah, I've been coming here from when... I, well, I used to be a belly dancer when I was young. And this is where we would come to get our finger symbols. <laughs> but today, she's picking up stacks of filo dough for Thanksgiving. We're making spanakopita. We're Greek, Americans. And we're also making some pastizzo, which is uh, kind of a Greek lasagna. Oh, that sounds delicious. Yeah. Is that typical for Thanksgiving, or...? Well, we do a mix. We do. We always do turkey, but we always try to throw in some Greek elements with it as well. <laughs> so the Greek stuffing has uh, sausage in it and celery and always oregano, which some people aren't used to with the turkey. <laughs> and we have sometimes we have domades as an appetizer also. Yeah, we're all set. 
Down the street is the Mission District's fish and poultry market. After a long wait in line, Maria Estela Escobar puts in her Thanksgiving order. She asks for three chickens. She says she's making tamales, typical Salvadoran food. She's already bought the banana leaves that she'll use to wrap the masa, chicken, and potato. Escobar and her husband are here in the U.S. alone. They send their earnings home to support their kids back in El Salvador. Still, Escobar will cook for a big group anyway. She says tamales are too much effort to only make a few. I'll make about 100 tamales, she says, and share them with my neighbors. For The World, I'm Monica Campbell, San Francisco. Turkey, though, is still the centerpiece of a traditional Thanksgiving meal. And here's something you probably don't know about that turkey. The holiday bird is not as American as apple pie. The commercial turkey breeds we consume didn't originate here. They trace back to Mexico, as it turns out. Brandon Keim writes about the circuitous journey of the domesticated turkey for Wired. How far back can scientists trace the turkey? How do they get from Mexico to the United States? Hmm. Well, in evolutionary terms, of course, you'd be going back millions of years, eventually all the way back to the dinosaurs. But you see in southern Mexico, um, around 800 B.C., the first evidence that the people living there, the Aztecs, are starting to domesticate the big bundle of resources walking around on the ground that are turkeys. Really, it took about 700 years for the process to really take off. And, you know, at the time, they're not just eating turkeys. The feathers have a ritual importance. And by the year 200 or so, all around Mesoamerica, the turkey has been domesticated That's the beginning of the turkeys that we have. And then, of course, you know, there's still another more than a thousand years before the conquistadors arrived, the Spanish explorers. They brought the turkey back to Europe with them. So the conquistadors took the domesticated turkey, brought it back to Europe, and it came from Europe back to the United States. That's right. There was a a European detour there there where they were doing a lot of crossbreeding really refining the turkey as we know it. And they also named the turkey, that Mesoamerican creature uh, scientifically known as uh, Meliagris Galapavo Galawavo, looked a lot like a bird that can also be found in Turkey, the guinea fowl. So they named this the turkey. And then the pilgrims brought the turkey back to the New World when they came. We don't actually know if the pilgrims would have eaten turkeys on Thanksgiving but they would have had turkeys in their lives. We're talking now about the domesticated turkey. There were wild turkeys here in the United States, right? There were, but only a tiny little bit of wild turkey can be found in the breeds that we use now commercially. If you have wild turkeys um, in your area and you look out, those are really different birds than the commercial ones. So the ones I almost hit on the way to my in-laws, they were here in America. That's right. Okay. And and what about the Native Americans? It would seem that, you know, they did a lot of stuff when it comes to cultivating crops. Did they not have a hand in uh, domesticating the local variety? In the eastern United States, that doesn't seem to have been the case. But there was actually a second incidence of the domestication of the turkey in North America. And this was in the American Southwest, people living there, including the Anasazi Around 200 BC or so, they domesticated turkeys independently of what was going on in Mexico. And, you know, up until the westward expansion of Europeans and their turkeys obliterated them, they had uh, their own turkey industry going on. 
ultimately, as we all sit down today to our turkey dinners, we should be giving thanks to the Mesoamerican Aztecs and the uh, conquistadors for our centerpiece. That is correct. And we should also be appreciative of the efforts that farmers have made to uh, really refine the modern turkey into the industrial marvel that it is. Those 46 million turkeys that we're all going to eat today are less diverse than chickens. They are very much alike. And um, it's worth checking out one of your local farmer's heritage breeds and uh, keeping alive sort of the genetic diversity that we're in danger of losing in the turkey world. Brandon Keim, an editor at Wired, thank you so much. No worries. Happy Thanksgiving. Holidays are deeply associated with food in many cultures. Take the holiday of Eid al-Adha, which Muslims celebrated a few weeks ago. It honors the ancient story in which God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son. The tradition is for Muslims to sacrifice an animal, like a cow or a lamb, and then share the meat with family, friends, and the poor. This year, reporter Beanish Ahmed celebrated Eid al-Adha in a way she hadn't before in her parents' home country, Pakistan. She reflects on that experience, which included witnessing the animal's slaughter. The true Eid is in Pakistan, my parents would always say. They resigned themselves to ordering meat from halal butcher shops in the States before calling their brothers and sisters in Pakistan to ask about the animals they had slaughtered. For my parents, carting home mutton that came cleaned, cut, and cubed just wasn't the same as making your own sacrifice. This year, I experienced the sort of Eid celebration my parents have missed out on for decades. It started with a trip to a makeshift livestock exchange. The muddy field is dotted with tents, cots, and goats. One merchant tells me he's been camping here with his livestock for 10 days. Hitesh Khan says the first thing prospective customers look at is a goat's teeth to tell its age. He says people ask if it's a donda or a kira. A donda is a little older, about two years old, and people prefer them. Rifith Afridi is one of the few women out goat shopping. She tells me she's on the hunt for the prettiest animal she can find. Bring home an ugly goat, Afridi says, and everyone will make fun of you. The next morning, my uncles come back from the mosque. They bring two butchers with them. The name of God is said over a knife as the first cow's legs are tied with blue rope. The butcher cuts the cow's thick neck. It kicks and clamors. The blood laps at my toes. It takes hours for the meat to take the shape of the steaks I'm used to. We'll only slaughter two animals today, says Sherazad, one of the butchers. Two workers can only do so much. His brother is swinging an axe to a set of beef ribs. I force myself to watch as they remove the cow's hide and its balloon of a stomach. I seem to be the only one cringing. My relatives in Pakistan have seen these sacrifices time and again. What they don't see are the sacrifices my parents made when they moved to America 30 years ago. My family has missed out on so many holidays, weddings, births, and somber moments, too. Muslims believe Abraham was asked to take his son's life to prove his love for God. It's love for their children that keeps my parents away from their brothers and sisters. Eid is about sacrifice. 
but it's also about gratitude. I've gained a lot from coming back to Pakistan, not least of which is a newfound appreciation for the meat my aunts and uncles keep piling high onto my plate and for where it comes from. For the world, I'm Beenish Ahmed, Islamabad. For today's GeoQuiz, we're looking for a town in Canada that's thinking big. It bills itself as the future home of a supersized ski resort, the only year-round ski resort in North America. In fact, well, there's no resort yet and no actual town either, just government approval for a new municipality. But there is a mayor, and the resort is in the early stages of development. So can you name this town with a big name and big plans for the future? Big is a hint, by the way. You've got mere seconds to shoot out of the gate and get down the hill on this one. Time's up. We've got the mayor of this new Canadian town with us now, Mayor Greg Deck. Tell us the name of your new municipality. It's the Mountain Resort Municipality of Jumbo Glacier Resort. You have a lot of people there in in Jumbo that elected you? Well, right now there's a council of three, and that would be three people more than the entire population. But in order to get these things off to a good start, you want to plan in advance of the residents and visitors arising. So that's our job, to to make sure when people do show up, the resort is ready for them. There are no people yet, as you say, but there are grizzly bears, in fact. And that is part of the controversy that's surrounding this project. Environmentalists say you're taking over the grizzly bear habitat. What, what do you say to those people? Anytime there's, there's human settlement in the backcountry, there will be some conflicts between people and, and wildlife. And our job is to try to, to make those as minimal as possible. It, it is important to bear in mind here that this, some, some of the most critical habitat in our area is the, the winter range, where the animals that live up high in the summer come down to the winter to try to make it through the, the, the tough season. The animals, bears included for the most part up here, are asleep in the winter and they don't eat glaciers. They, they don't graze on glaciers. It's the very valley bo- bottom where we have to be careful. So there won't be any barbecues out on decks at Jumbo because that's a bear attractant. There won't be any fireplaces burning wood at Jumbo because we don't want any clouds in a really clean air shed. There will be a level of environmental consciousness going into the construction and operation of this that I I think will be quite impressive. Greg, uh, help us out a bit, those of us south of the border. Where where is uh, Jumbo going to be? If you came straight north from the Idaho-Washington border, about 200 miles, you'd be pretty close. For those of you with the knowledge of Canada, it's southwest of Banff and Lake Louise in the Canadian Rockies. This is kind of in the middle of nowhere, right? I mean, do you need to build roads, maybe an airport, something? There's already a road to it. The, the reason this site is so attractive is it's one of the few places you can get up to the base elevation of over 5,000 feet without a single switchback. Right now, this area is skied by helicopter skiers. And that's a very expensive way to, to see it. I would like to see it available to people of, of a little more modest means. But I hope that that amazing terrain is matched by a design for the, the village itself that is closer to a cruise ship than Aspen, that is a very tight, walled village almost, where the environment can flow by it the way the ocean flows by a, a cruise liner without disturbing it. I'm not 
sure how to how to say this. I, I don't want to insult anyone, but Jumbo, the name Jumbo for ski resort. That's the name of the creek that runs up this valley. It's been known as Jumbo Valley for as long as there have been European settlers in the area. It's a jumbo skiing opportunity. I, I suppose you have to <laughs> take it <good>. both ways. <laughs> Greg Deck, mayor of the municipality of Jumbo, British Columbia, the answer to our geo quiz. Thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure. You're listening to PRI. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. Every year, millions of pilgrims flock to a temple in the South Indian state of Kerala. After 41 days of fasting and miles of walking, pilgrims reach the temple in the middle of the forest and await a sign from God. But for decades, a growing group of rationalists have protested against this ritual. The rationalists claim temple authorities are creating fake miracles, lying to the pilgrims, and creating a dangerous situation. Reporter Ashley Cleek traveled to India to explore this battle between religion and rationality. The temple complex at Shabrimala is massive and noisy. Shops sell CDs and DVDs of devotional songs. Mammoth purple and yellow buses grumble past, decorated in garlands of orange and yellow flowers. The temple grounds are thronged with men, dressed in simple black cloth, barefoot, and carrying small bundles on their heads. These are the Swami Ayappa pilgrims, and this temple... Shabrimala is among the most famous in southern India. The pilgrimage to Shabrimala starts in mid-November. Men dress in simple black clothes. They abstain from meat, alcohol, and sex. They're supposed to walk barefoot and reach the shrine by January 14th. No women between the ages of 10 and 50 are allowed. After prayers, pilgrims wait on the top of hills, and at a pre-appointed time, a light appears. The light blinks. One... Two, three. I've seen the light, yes. It's like a flame, you know. Satish Madhavan is a businessman in Bangalore. The moment this happens, you know, everybody, you know, this huge uh, chant going up there, you know, Swami Sharanam Ayyappa. It's like an eruption. Swami Ayyappa, Swami Ayyappa, it goes like that. Jay Kumar is the head of the board that takes care of the temple and runs the festival. It's a kind of spell. All this... Tens and thousands of people, millions of people stand there just to see the light glow three times. The light in the sky is broadcast on national television and radio. For decades, the light was believed to be divine, the light of God. But in 2011, the government admitted the light at Shabrimala is fake. That was music to the ears of India's rationalists, who believe that all phenomena can be explained by science. The rationalists have spent the past few decades trying to debunk many of India's religious myths including Shabrimala. Because this is a man-made disaster. And under the guise that this is a divine phenomenon, hundreds of thousands of people were attracted there. Philip Vargas is an attorney and a rationalist. Way back in 1981, rationalists took photos of workers lighting giant camp for lamps. But nothing changed. Then, in 1999, 52 pilgrims were killed trying to catch a glimpse of the light. The same thing happened in 2011. 106 were killed. The rationalists had had enough. Varghese's office in the port city of Cochin is packed with case files and books on top of books analyzing India's penal code. Varghese took up the case for the rationalists. In court, 
the rationalists blamed the government for orchestrating a phony miracle, which resulted in the deaths of the pilgrims. Hundreds of thousands of people are coming thinking that this is a divine thing. And government simply keeps mum because trying to stop this might be controversial. The high court ruled in favor of the rationalists. In front of the high court, the government and the board that runs the temple admitted that they light the lamp. But still, many pilgrims believe in the miracle, that the light is divine. Temple custodian Jay Kumar says it doesn't matter. I know that it is man-made, I know everything, but still, you forget all that. He says the festival is like any religious ritual. It's about a feeling, about faith. You should surrender your belief, you know. You don't have to think who lit the lamp, when did they go there, nothing. You see a lamp and you are transported to a, a, a different plane. That is faith. Faith has no rationality. Jay Kumar says they will keep lighting the lamp every year. After all, he says, people expect it. Last year, a million and a half pilgrims showed up to see the lights, and temple authorities expect the numbers to grow. The rationalists say faith is fine, but public safety is more important. They plan to ask a court to stop the lamp lighting for good. Rationalist Anil Kumar says, as an Indian, it's his duty to protect and educate his countrymen. We have a fundamental duty to our nation to develop scientific temper, spirit of inquiry, humanity, and reform. And this is cheating, this is mere cheating the people, especially believers. Anil argues that people will still pay homage to Swami Ayapa at the temple, with or without the light. So why keep lighting it? And Satish, the Bangalorean businessman, agrees. Light or no light, he will still make another pilgrimage to Shabrimala. For The World, I'm Ashley Cleek, Kerala, India. You can see pictures of the Shabrimala temple at theworld.org. And tomorrow we'll hear about one of India's most celebrated rationalists who's facing jail time after publicly calling out the Catholic Church. Finally today, our guest DJ from Norway, Marius Asp, has one of his offerings for us. And if I may say so, it's pretty out there. Howdy. For this DJ pick, I've chosen the new album by one of the fiercest band on the flourishing Norwegian jazz rock scene, Elephant Nine. This power trio, consisting of keyboardist Ståle Storløkken, bass player Nikolai Eilertsen and drummer Torstein Loftus, started out as a jam band in 2006. Atlantis is their third album, and this time around they've reinforced the band with Swedish guitar maestro Rainer Fiske, best known for his work with psych rockers Dungen. The result is nothing short of mind-blowing. Let's listen to the title track. Fiske, who just released their third album, Atlantis, named after the Stockholm studio where it was recorded. Elephant Nine have continuously blurred the boundaries between jazz, rock, prog and funk since their formation in 2006. They've been compared to Miles Davis at the peak of his electric period, and his fusion milestone Bitches Brew may be the single most important foundation to these guys' sound. But Deep Purple, Emerson, Lake and Palmer and Norwegian jazz giant Tyre Yiptal also serve as reference points for this album. At the heart of it is the noisy, organic, smart and relentless groove they spent the last six years perfecting, as evident on the mesmerizing closer Freedom's Children.
Atlantis is undeniably a challenging album and by no means suited for casual listening. Three of the eight songs on the album exceed the 10-minute mark. However, it does reward repeated listening. Enjoy. Guest DJ Marius Asp from NRK, the Norwegian broadcasting company. His pick today is Atlantis by the group Elephant Nine. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH, I'm Aaron Schachter, wishing you a very happy Thanksgiving. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. The Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International.